Welcome, friends and fiends. This is your host, film critic and comedian, Nate Wyckoff. And I'm here to tell you about an exciting giveaway that Warner Brothers Discovery and Colton Classic Films LLC has put together to build your 4K Ultra HD film collection on digital. We are giving away four codes which contain digital 4K Ultra HD versions of Rebel Without a Cause, Maltese Falcon, and Cool Hand Luke. These are films that you absolutely must know as a film buff. You can get this code by being one of the lucky four people we pull from our newsletter list. So go to coltonclassicfilms.com slash newsletter and give us your email and your name and we'll sign you up for the newsletter and we will enter you in the competition. That's all you got to do. So please go ahead and do that. The contest ends on April 30th and we will send out the winning codes on May 1st. Thank you so much for being a listener. And here's your episode of Colton Classic Films Podcast. Welcome to Colton Classic. <laughs> Welcome, friends and fiends, to another episode of Colton Classic Podcast. These are the main Tuesday episodes where we bring you two films, one thematically, excuse me, one theme, two films, one mainstream and one cult. I uh, can't even remember our own formula here at Colton Classic Podcast. Uh, we're also going to launch a new change here. Normally, we'll have one full episode where we talk about both movies, uh, but now we're going to offer two parts to every episode. So Tuesday, we'll talk about part one, and then the next Tuesday, we'll talk about part two, and then the following Tuesday, we'll move on to another part one and then part two. Uh, it's going to make it easier for us to bring you all this awesome free content. Also, we can spend a little more time uh, when needed per episode and continue to get you the same awesome feedback. Plus, if you really hate one of the movies and you've seen it already and you don't want to hear us talk about it, you can cherry pick which movie we uh, you listen to. And then when you listen to the other one, you'll realize how much you need to hear what we have to say about the other one. And you'll go back and understand the error of your ways. And in that way, we'll fix your entire your life here at Colton Classic Podcast. So, as always, I am Nate Wyckoff, comedian and film critic, and your host. And we have a great panel today. First up is Jeffrey Tucker. How are you doing, Jeff? Good. How are you doing, Nate? Good, good, good. Greg, how are you doing, Mister? Well, now that I got my virtual background to work, I'm very happy for nice. once. That is correct. Greg Johnson has had trouble with the virtual backgrounds, and remember, guys. Although I know most of us listen to podcasts via audio only we are on youtube at colton classic podcast where you can watch all of our uh episodes though they are updated a little bit later than the audio and last but not least we have amanda longley how are you doing mandy i'm fantastic today of course Uh, i only occasionally forget to ask my panelists (laughs) questions uh yeah so i'm excited about this we have uh this this great theme with one of my all-time favorite movies and a new movie that i haven't seen before until this episode's preparation uh and the theme for this selection is coming of age yes you can spell coming however you want because either spelling would be appropriate for this pair first up we have rob reiner's seminal classic from 1986 stand by me Uh, And then following it up, we have uh, cult favorite Chris Seaver's send-up called The Weirdsies uh, from, I believe, 2017. Am I right on that? I think 2015. 2015. I'm jumping ahead. See, I I didn't tell you guys, but I time travel. And so uh, things get confused for me. 2015 is the weirdsies. So first up, we're going to talk about Stand By Me in this episode. And even though we're splitting up 
uh, our episodes into part one and part two each week, which I think will make it easier for a lot of people to keep up with us. We uh, are still going to be referring back and forth, so uh, don't be alarmed. Uh, if you don't understand something we mentioned about a movie, listen to the next part too, and we'll get to it then. But I'm going to start us off with a uh, summary of the plot of Stand By Me from 1986. I think many people have seen this movie. It is a classic, and uh, so many, uh, it has a lot of accolades and things. Uh, among its biggest fans is Stephen King, who wrote the novella that this is based off of. The original novella uh, is from the collection Different Seasons, um, and it was called The Body which they changed to Stand By Me because they were afraid the body sounded, uh, I think the production said, either sexual or like a horror movie. Uh, and this really isn't either. Uh, I guess, depending on uh, your uh, how you feel about train tracks. So Stand By Me <laughs> follows four friends who are about 12 going on 13 uh, as they leave their small town the movie says it's based in castle rock oregon the novella is castle rock maine which is of course where many of stephen king's works to take place like cujo needful things there are even some characters overlapping so for stephen king fanatics this is a fun one as is the novella and uh i count myself among that as does mandy and they overhear from one of their uh, older brothers that a missing boy uh, is actually in the woods dead, killed by a train, but it's about a, a day hike away. So they decide that they're going to tell the parents that they're staying at each other's houses and go on a two-day trip to find this body and bring it back so they can get in the paper and be local heroes. Uh, the boy is about their age, and it, it's, it's really a coming-of-age story. As we said uh, for our theme this week, the boys discuss all sorts of things as they go uh, uh, through this journey. They play, they fight, they cry about their parental situations and personal struggles. And in the end, they come away with uh, some sort of progression into adulthood. And this movie has been referenced in so many things. I think Family Guy probably references or spoofs this film at least once a season. Um, it's got this famous device, framing device, which Rob Reiner, the director, famous as well, Meathead from uh, the, you know, uh, Archie Bunker series. Well, I'm blanking on that name. Well, it'll come to me, and you already know, so there's no need to say that. But uh, he's he's known for framing devices such as the Princess Bride, um, I, which is also based on a book. Um, in this case, it is one of the main characters is dead. And uh, his best friend from the past is reading about it and contemplating it in the truck. And then we learn he's writing a story. And as always, guys, there are spoilers in these reviews. I don't think our spoilers ever ruin the film because really a good film does not hinge on a gotcha moment, although it can enhance it. Uh, in this case, there is no gotcha moment. You're told right away that there, the, one of the characters is dead as an adult. Um, it's a heartfelt movie. Uh, you have four kids. You have it's an incredible cast. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland plays um, the older, uh, scary, violent dime store hood character, uh, along with his gang of friends, several of which are brothers of the younger kids. 
And then you have Jerry O'Connell as the chubby dorky friend. You before he he slimmed up to do the masterpiece that is Piranha 3D. Um, and then and of course Sliders. And he uh, is paired with uh, Rivers Phoenix, Joaquin Phoenix's uh, brother who uh, died young. Uh, but this is kind of his iconic film. Uh, and in some strange way, seems to mirror the story of his life, or at least the legend that has become of his life. Uh, and then we have Will Wheaton, uh, who is, uh, of course, now a novelist and nerd guru, but was the year after this uh, young Wesley Crusher, Ensign Crusher from Star Trek The Next Generation. And then uh, rounding all this out, we have Corey Feldman as the troubled... Um, prone to fits of rage, uh, son of a man who probably who was considered a lunatic, but probably suffered from uh, post-traumatic stress disorder due to being on the beaches of Normandy, uh, we, we think. We, we can assume that's true, but we don't really know. We never meet him. So they go through this sort of country life uh, through the woods, this journey, um, and ultimately they reach the body, come to some understandings about their own lives, and also come to potential blows with the older hoodlums uh, headed by Kiefer Sutherland. They, Will Wheaton's character, who is kind of the smaller, weaker, always being protected by the leader, um, uh, River Phoenix's character, pulls a gun that they have on uh, Kiefer Sutherland's character and sort of ends that standoff and that's sort of the climactic moment and from then it's the, the denouement and they they go back to the future and you find out what happened um you know uh, troubled river phoenix's character did get out of the town where he and his family were considered garbage people and became a lawyer and successful and was still diffusing fights uh unfortunately he was killed uh, in, a, in a random attack that he tried to break up at some sort of restaurant stand, I think. Um, and then the others sort of just all lose touch. And Quill Wheaton's character has become uh, Richard Dreyfus. At least that's who he's portrayed in the end. He's actually portrayed by someone different in the beginning, which is funny. But it doesn't really matter because there's so much movie in between. We don't remember that. Um, Richard Dreyfus is a successful writer at the end. So all of the characters, as far as we know, have sort of gone to fulfill maybe their best lives we the, the Corey feldman's character is the one-off where he tried to join the military like his father but because his father disfigured his ear and he needs glasses he didn't get in and they think he went to jail at some point we don't really get much information on that as far as a writer goes you could probably have done a little more research and actually fleshed that out but that's okay yeah so if you know stephen king material this sounds right up the alley of Stephen King, right? You have a writer looking back on his life. You have um, children undergoing very adult scenarios in order to grow and become the people that they'll ultimately be as adults. And it's um, all in front of the backdrop of this great 50s rock and roll music with the iconic song, Stand By Me. Interesting thing, Stand By Me, of course, is the title, but also um, is the end credit song. And actually, Michael Jackson recorded a cover of this, and that was what the studio wanted them to use um, for the end credits. But uh, Reiner decided in the end that, that the original is more fitting, and it's a Ben E. King song, which when this was released um, in 1986 became 
uh, uh, top 10, uh, number nine, I think is where it peaked um, in because of this movie. Uh, and it's, of course, that's like 28 years after it originally aired. So that's always fun. We saw that with Walk the Line and things like that as well. So I'm going to stop talking here for a minute, which is a rarity. And we're going to go to you guys. Um, Jeff, let's start with you. One, had you seen this movie before? And now that you've watched it again for this podcast, how do you feel about it? Um, I probably watch this movie like every six years, just, I don't know, randomly. Um, and the funny thing is, I remember having the exact same thought this time as last time, uh, but somehow I'd forgotten in between is like, just like how many people in the cast are like surprising. Like yeah. Jerry O'Connell's like, oh, I know that person, but he's a little fat kid in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, uh, you know, it's like kind of young Kiefer, um, John Cusack know, plays um, Will John's older brother who has died uh, and left his family in shambles. Yeah, it feels like every scene is just like, oh, whoa, that, like there's like a new yeah. person uh, being introduced that uh, has had a pretty large career since uh, since this film, um, which is, you know, pretty rare when you have like a lot of like younger people in a film. Absolutely. Um, uh, you know, except for, uh, you know, obviously River Phoenix you know, he was, he did have a career right up until he was successful until his death. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But like even Will Wheaton, he's still acting. He's, you know, he grew up to look like a normal person. So Hollywood doesn't have any space for normal people, right? The normal people. I have to say Um, Will Wheaton as a, as a young man in this, I mean, he's beautific almost. I mean, he's, he's doe eyed, very slight and graceful, like just a very, it's, it's one of those things where he was the perfect cast and they actually went through several people, um, they, they thought about Ethan, Ethan Hawke uh, at one point, I guess. They're, they're, if you go online, you can find the full list. But they went through sort of a lot of preteen heartthrobs before settling on Will Wheaton. And I think his demure appearance really helped set him apart in this group, right? Because he's the one that they expected was from an okay family, would go on to good things. And yet uh, everyone else was kind of expected from their peers and their town to just become become townies with nothing to offer yeah um, which they were wrong about right? like of course you find out that yeah. uh yeah you make your own destiny uh not not only in this film but in real life and uh, in a lot of cases um but yeah I, I mean i still i still love this film um uh maybe less now than i i did previously but um do you think it's because you're farther away from the coming of age age? Yeah, maybe. Or maybe it's just because, um, I don't know, there aren't as many, uh, you know, surprising beats anymore. Um, yeah. I, and uh, I, I don't know. I, I love, just in general, like I love Stephen King. Like he, he seems to be like an unintentional script writer. Um, like almost like almost all of his books have been made in the films at this point. The, the quantity is absurd and i think it's just because he really writes characters um you know like everything else is just uh you know happenstance so that really translates well into to film um so he had a really colorful you know group of characters here that uh um, you know is, is interesting to revisit if not uh um, for me you know as amazing as as it was the first time yeah, I yeah. feel like I feel like his novellas really, really translate well Absolutely. because they are at a scale that fits into a movie mm-hmm. with all of the character development. 
Yep. So you're not like overwhelmed by plot, but like you have a lot of soul still in them. Well, yeah. in this particular collection, um, when it was published, different seasons, since mm -hmm. that, since it was publishing, I mean, uh, there's four novellas in it, yeah. and three of them have been made into films. Um, Apt yeah. Pupil um, with Ian McKellen and um, uh, Shawshank Redemption, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we, I think Breathing Room is the only one that hasn't been uh, put into film, which give it time. Give it time. Somebody um, will do it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we'll do it. Let's kickstart that right now. <laughs> um, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah, we'll go to Greg. Greg, have you seen this movie before? And what was your take on it seeing it this time? Um, yeah, I have seen it before. Um, seeing it this time, um, I think I have to kind of echo Jeff a bit. Um, it, I definitely lost some love for it. Um, I think it really kind of hit the nail on the head with um, having watched Stranger Things. I mean, since I last saw stand by me and kind of recognizing what i like most about stranger things is it doesn't take itself too seriously and kind of recognizes that the time it's trying to encapsulate maybe isn't quite as um real as the as maybe the filmmakers of stand by me and the writer of stand by me would have you know kind of wanted us to believe like oh this the the latchkey kid generation and all this other stuff going on and it's not quite so um, so black and white. Well, it's it's a very romantic vision, right? Like Robert oh, yeah. seems to be the master. I mean, look at Princess Bride. I personally think this is probably his best movie, and and I he agrees apparently uh, according to the interviews. But it's one of those things where it's interesting because, like Stephen King material, these children deal with very adult things. You know, they have um, uh, one one is an abusive. Fat, you know, parent situation um, uh, with with violent brothers, and then another one is um, an overweight dorky kid who's very needy and constantly wanting attention, and probably victimized because of that in some ways. Um, and then you have Will Wheaton's character, whose father clearly uh, favored his brother, and once his brother died, seems to see nothing but failed potential in his his living son so you have yeah. these really big um things that kids are these kids are dealing with and at the same time they can't possibly process them as adults would and so it's just that first step of essentially losing their innocence right like the entire the entire plot is these kids losing the veneer of um of childhood they can no longer ignore these things they're they're each in turn forced to see these things except for maybe um jerry o'connell's character right uh Vern, the, the the nerdy one because we don't really see he doesn't seem to change that much that we know of and he also during the um the big showdown with the gun and Kiefer sutherland's character and his gang he runs off and he's hiding in the woods behind them and that could maybe be indicative um that he doesn't change, but also we learn that he's become a blue collar worker with a family um, that he married right out of high school. It could be that he's essentially well, well balanced, right? To begin with, because he's the one he, he wants to impress his friends, but he seems happy despite the shortcomings. He's needy and he's overweight and they make fun of him all the time, but he seems to be relatively happy. So I think there's lots of things you can read into that final scene where he's the one that leaves first and he's also shows 
no particular clear change. And it may not be that he's failed at that. It may be that he didn't need the kind of change or, uh, or realization epiphany moments that these other characters did. Um, and then we have uh, Corey Feldman's character who also leaves though after Vern in that final moment. And he um, has a troubled future, right? Uh, so did he not um, face the moment as Will Wheaton's character and River Phoenix's character did? And they go on to become the, we don't know, we can't say the best version of themselves, but the dream versions of themselves. Um, and the other two stay in the realm that they already were in. Um, you know, just, I think... I I think Stand By Me really is just it with all the fat trimmed off. Instead of this contrived clown representing growth, they're like, you know what? Fuck that. They just have abusive parents and they, they learn a lesson and there's a dead body. Well, there's definitely parallels. I mean, it is probably, no, it's not probably, it is my favorite Stephen King novel. Um, and the, uh, the 90 um, miniseries is by far the better fight me everyone i don't care the the, <laughs> the, the tim remakes, curry one yeah the remakes yeah, yeah. Were, were weak sauce by far uh in, in many ways but um it is very much that right like stephen king in it gets to pour out all sorts of straight adult vision material right like it's very adult centric even though you have the kids like there's the sexual awakening moments um there's the concepts of interdimensional god creation all of these things and Stand By Me is the kids. Even though it's a looking back, it's the looking back doesn't seem so much a reflection as an explanation, which I guess you could argue is what a reflection is, right? But um, it's the classic device is an adult understanding what happened to the kids through an adult lens. But really, we don't get a ton of adult um, lens in this because we almost exclusively he narrates like a couple of lines throughout the film um and they're never the big lines we don't get him saying that's when i realized that my dad would never love me the way he loved danny you know he doesn't say that and he doesn't need to because what we're seeing is what we're supposed to be understanding because it's what the kids are getting and so and and and, and whereas it is sort of more of the adult lens and so i don't really it's just they're two different beasts, but they have so much of the same setup. Um, Stephen King did a similar thing when he was writing as Richard Bachman with uh, two novels. The oh, I forget what they're I forget what they're called. That one is Desperation, um, and the other is Regulators. The Regulators. Thank you. Um, where he has the same characters, um, but two completely different plots, and they're essentially companion pieces that cannot exist in the same time because the characters are the same people but in different roles uh different ages and um and it's just a very strange thing it was like an experiment and to, to see these two you know when, when you read one you get an interesting story when you read two you get this really well-rounded character development of all these different people um imagining how they would be if they were literally someone else uh it's wild and we sort of get like a primordial version of that with stand by me and it um, but Mandy, you've seen this film before. What was your experience with it this time? Yeah, I just, it was a really nice kind of like a walk down memory lane, I guess. Uh, but it, yeah, it was one I remember seeing like pretty young. And that I think in one of my friends' 
parents' Stephen King collection probably really got me into being a Stephen King fan. Um, and I probably read like everything of his in his catalog up to the early 2000s. And then I kind of like veered off into to other genres and authors and stuff um, a lot more. Yeah, it was just super nice. Um, and it was like a little, it was good to like, like look at maybe some other reviews uh, that people have written and their thoughts on it and kind of get some new perspectives on it as well this time around. It's just, it's an interesting film to me in so many ways, because as, as you said, Greg, it is a romanticized view of this 50s or, you know, leading into the 60s past. And at the same time, the material is so unpleasant in many cases that it's sort of wild that we see it as a safe place and a safe film and a, and a, and a safe journey to take. And I don't know if it's because we've all seen it several times and so we know that nothing too truly tragic happens during the time span of the film uh unless you count the future you know murder of of uh river phoenix's character but or if if it's the tone and presentation because there's so much sort of jovial moment there's so many jovial moments in this film but there's also a lot of this like childlike ridiculousness like the flights of anger and the constant infighting that literally just blows over in two minutes uh, or less and i think it's all the writing i mean this this movie is like the pinnacle of emotional porn it knows exactly how to make you feel sad how to make you cry and do it in like you said a a safe way yeah i think you're right i think it's it's and, and this is a a lot of people don't like this term but it's there's really no other term like it it's sort of masturbatory in this way Right. Like we enjoy going through the emotions that this movie is taking us on. And we get the nostalgia of the fact that we will never not have been children. So while we may when you see this as a kid the first time, you're like, wow, that's kind of exciting. When you see it as an adult, you're like, oh, yeah, I remember one, my childhood and two, that this is what childhood was presented to be like. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I don't know that we you know, any of us have had this. Uh, necessarily. I mean, I know Jeff and Mandy and I grew up in the country, essentially, um, though not wide country. And uh, I, I don't I don't know, I, I guess certain things ring true and other things. It was just like watching a fun um, story of another person's experience with it. Um, mm-hmm. So no matter what, I was able to lay myself on the template of the film. Um, and I think that that's what a lot of coming age I think that's what all coming of age movies do uh, in a sense. And that's why they have their own genre called coming of age is we know exactly what these films do. They are, they, they induce nostalgia and they present uh, people going through a a change that uh, definitely alters their worldview. Um, And I think this really is the iconic coming of age film. I, I can't quite think of another one. Uh, maybe Rebel Without a Cause, um, but that's a much more open, you know, ended film in that you're sort of, le- it's it's almost a, I don't want to use the word nihilistic, I use it on this podcast all the time, um, but it has a much more, a much less clear, less positive outcome to, to young adult life. Um, whereas this one, you know, the tragedy doesn't befall the kids in the film, they have difficult lives but it doesn't befall them until this future moment that sends uh richard dreyfus looking back 
on them. Yeah, I think the other thing that um, I find, I guess, like, feels safe about this movie, even though there's a lot of, like, kind of danger in it, um, is that it really calls out, like, all of the kind of negative or toxic behavior for, like, what it is. Like, you're never, like, it, you're never coming across characters who are acting like assholes, and they're just like, oh, that's normal, or, like, that person's cool. They're all like, yeah, no, that, that dude's bad, or, like, that went down really poorly, like, and um, the friends, like, although they are infighting, in, they have, they all have moments where they're there for each other, and accepting each other, and, like, listening, um, and, like, holding space for each other, and, like, I mean, shooting down, like, the negative self-talk, mm-hmm. like, all that, like, kind of stuff, um, pushing each other, like, there's, like, you know, making um, River Phoenix's character go to the college classes. Yeah. Um, like, at the end, like, you know, it was hard, but we did it, because, like, you know, it's what we did, like, because it's what he needed to do, and he needed a friend to do it with. Um, I, I think that makes it feel, like, a lot more comfortable mm-hmm. as a watch, you're not like oh like that's like a bad romance or like ew like mm-hmm. that person's doing like not great things but they're getting rewarded for it like it yeah and i think i always think back to it because i actually think about it a lot because mm-hmm. <laughs> i it's one of my favorites is um the dangers in it are beyond comfort like um and not just from you know pennywise the clown's character it's actually from the world around them too right like the the equivalent of Kiefer sutherland's character from it is very violent and um and truly looks to violently harm the the other kids frequently that's their main thing whereas Kiefer sutherland he does he pulls a knife on um river and um will's characters but and it stopped but he's shown that even that is too far for like uh river's brother's character like river's character's brother um they're like whoa 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 like that's the moment too far um whereas in it it's very early on that we see that these they're disturbed disturbed characters especially in the book uh and the versus the the miniseries or the um contemporary remakes and it's sort of you know we we may we may start to feel discomfort when you know a kid is thrown to the ground and made to say the equivalent of uncle but <laughs> we kind of we're like okay this happens something maybe not exactly like that hopefully but something like that has happened to each of us or people we know and they've gone on and it hasn't damaged them profoundly for the rest of their lives um so it's safe in that way to i something i really liked about this movie and my wife and I talk about this a lot because of the fan fiction world um, when that crops up is the amount of emotion between boys, males in this movie. Um, they touch, there's a lot of physical contact, they caress, they hug, they cry. Um, and so often um, in, I think of um, Bucky Barnes and uh, Steve Rogers in the Marvel Cinematic Universe there's so much endless fan fiction shipping the two of them together as a homosexual couple. And while there's nothing wrong with that, um, there is also nothing wrong with there being healthy male to male emotional relationships. And it's sort of like, because we've done such a bad job in our culture of giving um, 
you know, homosexual people, LGBTQIA, non-binary, people of color, all these other groups that aren't cis, um, straight, white people, any sort of representation, they have to latch on to what they can find and make work, right? So like Steve Rogers and Bucky then become a romantic couple because their relationship is closer than most male relationships in movies. And so this is what we have. It's the idea that like Scar in the animated Lion King film, you know, became like an underground gay icon because he was flamboyant and powerful and had a sexy voice. And so he becomes his icon. When people are like, that's insane. That's crazy. No, it's because you haven't given people any sort of way to identify themselves in your stories. Um, So I, I see things like Stand By Me and my first thought is, is this is sort of homoerotic. Um, and you could make that reading, but then I have to check myself and say, actually, this is probably healthy and unrelated to heterosexuality or homosexuality. It's healthy, you know, people bonding, male to male bonding, just like there should be between all uh, gender identities and things. And so when I see these and I'm sort of struck I, it's a constant reminding myself that, uh oh, this is what we should feel and would feel and would act if we weren't concerned with the world watching. And I and that got me thinking in this film, the fact that they're in the woods on these train tracks from almost the whole thing, they are secluded from the town and all of the um, weights that are put on them by uh, others that they know looking at them, essentially, or being privy to them. And that's why it's the perfect and really only available moment where they can each express themselves honestly. Um, Teddy can break down about his father being, you know, uh, mentally disturbed uh, and away and having, you know, inflicted violence upon him. And um, River's character can talk about how he's, his life is hopeless um, and he's a waste of potential. And Walt can talk about the fact that his dad wishes he were the one that was dead instead of his brother. Like all these things happen because they're in the woods, which are separate from their societal pressures. I think it helps that um, they're all reluctant to those positive male relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a, yeah, Teddy, um, he apologizes to the group. He's like, Oh, sorry. I ruined our good fun. When he, when he gets upset about someone mocking his father, Mm -hmm. you know, instead of kind of, I don't know. They, yeah, they, they played a little more realistic where even though they have this good, healthy male to male relationship outside of sexuality, mm-hmm. it's, it's something that they don't just lean into a hundred percent because right. I mean, what, what, what it's, man it's period does. <laughs> right. It's uncomfortable the way we've, we've developed and been raised and the way that we're seen. And so like, um, uh, and we, we get characters that don't, like like Corey Feldman's character, Teddy, they lose contact with him and Vern pretty quickly, right? Like that next year, they start to drift away. And you have to wonder, when people expose their vulnerability uh, to another person, there's often one of two things. Either they become very close because they have you know shared trauma, whatever the case is, they become very close, or they push away because that person now knows their vulnerability and that makes them uncomfortable. And so they step back. And Teddy is also the one that seems to have what we would consider from the outside, the least successful future, right? 
because he's the one that doesn't get into the military like he wanted uh, for probably questionable reasons, as I imagine a therapist would say. Uh, and then, and he also then potentially goes to jail, uh, Shawshank. And, okay, so like we get these, uh, the people that do succeed that we know about um, are then uh, Rivers and Will's characters and they drift apart, but it's far in the future. Like he says, well, I haven't talked to him for 10 years before he died, but I'll still miss him forever. And 10 years, I mean, he's what, in his 40s, it looks like? Uh, or they portray him in his 40s. He has a couple of, of young teenage sons about the same age as the kids are in his flashbacks. Uh, so we have, you know, that that's a seems like a healthy relationship, you know, um, in many ways growing up. They stayed in touch a lot more than a lot of people who, who were friends at this age. So they leaned into it more, It's you could argue, and came out better for it. Whereas someone like Teddy just couldn't, potentially deal with that vulnerability being made clear to other people because now you know they know who i really am they know i'm weak they know i have all these problems i can't be near them uh and it's a coping mechanism and he's the one that struggles going forward uh i think that that's an, an arguable uh argument to make and i guess one thing that i noticed watching this as an adult i still very much enjoyed the movie I think everyone should see this movie if you're a film person or if you just want something that's kind of lightweight is, I guess, the best word to describe it. Although I don't really, there's so much subtext that I think you could make an argument that it's not really lightweight. It's just not stressful. Um, is as an adult watching this now, the, the framing story feels literary, but I don't know that it adds anything to the movie. Um, we could have had essentially the same, the same film. And I don't know that I would have gotten anything different out of it if I hadn't seen, um, Rivers characters, death notice in the paper at the start. And I hadn't had Richard Dreyfuss narrating it at the end. I mean, one, the one thing that you could argue we do get is we, we know what his life turned out to be. Um, I think that he also is there just to tell you that the story is important. Mm -hmm. as weird as that sounds you're like no this is really important pivotal part of my life mm -hmm. even though it was kind of just like normal yeah well I mean, it was, was, oh. well so like here's the thing that I, my favorite thing about this film today is the stakes are so low um this is actually i've brought this up many times uh this is something i want to see more in film uh the it, it tends to be that films try to ba basically make the stakes so high that it's like you know the whole universe is at stake here um based on what's going to happen to get people engaged um and in this movie there's like there's literally no stakes there's like yeah. they're going to see a body there, there's not like you you describe it as like the framing story it's hardly even that it's like they're doing something so trivial and meaningless um that you know chris siever made a movie to mock the premise almost because it's just it's so <laughs> so nothing but um they still like get you in with like good characters and um you know good um uh you know like those li those little nuggets of like the the uh, the background behind these characters and the the stresses that go on in their life you're you're engaged with them 
Um, and even though like there's really no momentum driving the whole film, like you have, you know, like a scene where they're going to crash train tracks. There's there's really nothing driving the tension leading up into this scene. And then they start going across this bridge and then the tension ramps up real quick because, you know, there's a train coming and they're, they're stuck on the bridge and it gets real tense real quick and then it's over. And I think that actually is what leads to the low stress of it is the, if you were to like draw a graph of stress versus like action, you get little blips of it that like get your heart going and get you excited, but then it just stops. It just goes down to nothing until you get another scene. Oh, then they're covered with leechers. Oh, this is really exciting. There's one on a, a, you know, some balls or penis or something really exciting. And then it goes back to kind of nothing. Um, even like the climactic scene where you, you end up at the, the body, you know, it wasn't like the, the older kids were like hunting them the whole film. No. They just showed up mm-hmm. at the same time they showed up. It, it was. And they tell them to get lost. Yeah. That, and that's really it. If they got lost, then that would have been the end of their story. Um, I think, and what you're describing is, is a road trip movie, right? Like that's why so many, that's why people like road trip movies because they're almost episodic, but in a, in a short film or in a film form, you know, you get this stop is this, this stretch is this. Uh, And then there's an overarching narrative. In this case, the overarching narrative is learning each kid's story, but definitely it's geared more towards um, uh, uh, Gordy, who is Will Wheaton's character's story of um, essentially coming to terms that, he'll never be his father's favorite maybe and that he needs to just focus on the fact that he can still become something what he wants to be and what he you know and and that he can have the faith in himself because he can't get it from his father um which i mean he has at the end when we see him he obviously has a better relationship with his own son Mm -hmm. absolutely um we see him playing with his kids at the end which as i said family guy spoofed i think this season uh (laughs) There, there's so many we also get this really famous scene um it's at the end after they come back to town where each kid walks off in a different direction um and then instead of going into their house they walk towards the house wave back and you get a little narration from richard drives about what happened to them and then they fade away um and i mean it's i'm i'm always conflicted about this kind of moment uh where you get an epilogue that says thing kid these characters drifted apart because i do wonder how often that really happens we all have people that we've drifted apart from jeff you and i in high school there are so many of our friends who we just haven't talked to since high school and probably won't and if we did we probably wouldn't have a lot in common with them anymore yeah um, nick fournier is getting married soon i just randomly found that out yeah there you go there's one. uh shout out to nick fournier i hope you're a listener if you are <laughs> uh you know kudos good good on you and and your partner um but yeah so that's the case and yet at the same time these people that have such shared experiences i do often have a hard time imagining that they really just drift away as normal people would um and the reason i say that is because it's it's convenient in fiction because it gives us an easy way out and it gives readers that one extra little like what moment right because you want them to stay together and have this dynamic forever because you've enjoyed it um so it's one of those things where at first you're like well it's realistic to drift apart but then you're like you know what these aren't normal circumstances if it were normal circumstances then it wouldn't be a movie um they're they're slightly uh, abnormal and because they're abnormal 
that often tends to draw people together. And it may be more difficult to wrap up in a narrative structure, but I'm not sure that it's actually more realistic that it would happen this way. Um, then there's the other people that say, well, it did. Like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang uh, with Robert Downey Jr. Uh, from the writer of Lethal Weapon. Like his, his or the couple movies in the Lethal Weapon series. The idea at the end, he's like, uh, Val Kilmer's alive. He, he survived. And they're like, I know what you're thinking. Like, why don't we just bring everybody back? And they have all the characters pile in the room that died. And he's like, but that's not how it happened. And they all leave. You know, like, it's like, it just happened that way. Things happen and you just have to accept it. We don't in film. That's why we get these neat wrap-ups or these little extra punches of I never saw them again or um, uh, American Dad. I know I'm pulling up all the Seth uh, McFarlane properties, but American Dad had the, had the joke as well in, in one of the episodes, uh, you know, like um, where Steve's narrating the future of all of his friends and they're all homosexual in some way. And then at the end, he's like, as for me, super gay also. You know, like they're just, it's this joke where a writer is sort of doing this epilogue, gives them the carte blanche to say whatever they want to get a rise out of the audience one more time and then leave. And you can't argue with them because you haven't seen any of the circumstances that lead up there, you know? Um, and I have, I sometimes have a problem with that. Uh, I think it works in a, in a period piece only because I mean, all of us grew up in an age of Facebook where you can, yeah. you know, kind of haphazardly come across something about someone where would you have otherwise right yeah and whereas in this case you know he would have to look up to see what happened to you know to teddy to, to, to sham you know but he also like, did happen to see a newspaper clipping about one of his friends even though i know he spoken in years and i know i guess he gets the weekly gazette of every fucking town in usa so <laughs> yeah i mean it's so it's like the suspension of disbelief um I, I, and so it's just, yeah, you just kind of have to accept it or not. And sometimes, especially because this type of ending has become so common, especially with coming of age and especially with indie, quote, indie film coming of age, because a coming of age novel doesn't need a lot of money, right? You just need the actors and they can wander somewhere. It's a physical journey mirrored by an emotional journey. I've gone on and on. I could talk about this film forever. We're going to move on to recommendations here. Um, Greg, would you recommend Stand By Me 1986? And if so, why and to who? Um, yeah, I would 100% recommend the uh, film adaptation of Final Fantasy 15 to everyone. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, I'd recommend it. I mean, I think it's heartfelt enough. Um, Mandy, I think you really hit the nail on the head that it's a film that brings up a lot of toxic shit but addresses it promptly and shows you the damage it causes and a better way forward. Um, Jeff, I think you hit it with, I mean, talking about it's, it's a, definitely a movie where you're like, Oh, it's so-and-so it's such and such. I love it. It's so nice to see that actor, this actress or whomever. Um, yeah. It's, it's a cute, it's a cute, good mo movie. Um, I don't know how many times I'll rewatch it in my life. I didn't think I would ever rewatch it to be honest, but I think it's, <laughs> if you've never seen it, I think it's worth a watch. It, it holds up. Fair, fair points. Mandy, would you recommend Stand By Me 1986? And if so, why and to who? I would definitely recommend this film. Um, I think it's just great. I think everyone should, well, everyone should see it. It's just like um, very like accessible to, I think, a wide range of people. And I think even like younger viewers um, might be a good one to watch um, even with their friends or their parents um, and you know I think it I just I love it I'm so glad we watched this one thanks 
<laughs> good, good, good. I'm glad. Uh, I agree. It's it's a good time. I think Jeffrey Tucker. Would you recommend Stand by Me 1986? Rob Reiner's gem, and if so, why and to who? Um, yeah, I mean, everybody should see this at least once in their life, um, maybe twice. Uh, you know, uh, basically anything with Rob Reiner on it in like the 80s is just solid gold, you know, easy pickings. Maybe, maybe do like a you know, a month where you watch every Rob Reiner film, you know, at least up to the 2000s. I can't, uh, I can't vouch for him past that, but uh, uh, yeah, he's 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 got a talent for uh, telling stories and so does Stephen King put them together you get uh, stand by me and misery watch them both <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, one I, thing I, I did I did for, I get um, we didn't add, say anything about the story of David Lard ass Hogan oh <laughs> yeah we did not which, I had which, forgotten about that but I love I that too. I love I that little like that. short in the this middle this is a yeah. story that Gordy the aspiring writer tells his friends over the campfire um and the story is is of a, a young man their age with a glandular problem, so he's very fat, and everyone in town, including the adults, calls him Lardass and teases him. So he plans a revenge where he drinks an entire bottle of, cast, bottle of castor oil, which is the most unbelievable moment, because that would, I'm sorry, you would die. Your body wouldn't die because of poisoning or anything. It would die of disgust. Um, and then a raw egg, and then does a pie eating contest, also, he can vomit directly in the face of a mean man and cause everyone else in the tent to vomit. So it's a giant vomit fest. It is literally, I mean, again, I'm going to bring it back to Seth MacFarlane. Every vomit joke that shows up in Family Guy and American Dad is a direct result of Lardass Hogan from Stand By Me, a.k.a. The Body. I mean, I love that, like, Rob Reiner didn't even try to make it look real. This is, like, yeah. this scene is, like, straight from, like, an from SNL stage, <laughs> like, performance. It's just, it, like, it very clearly, like, there's a tube and, like, somebody's going, <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's just launching material. It's, like, it. it's somehow, like, this real, like, weird, like, surreal shot thing inside It's like a Goosebumps film. episode, in a way. It feels like that sort of which I think was intentional because it's a child telling the story, right? Yeah. To gross his friends out. Um, it's very fitting. But it feels like it's straight out of a 12-year-old's imagination. Sure. <laughs> and a lot of people have, have argued that, because um, the, the friends, they're like, and then what happens? And he's like, what do you mean? That's the end. And he's like, but what happened to him? And he's like, the, the end. And then Teddy's like, well, I mean, what? Does he, does he go home and shoot his dad and then become a lone ranger, like oh, the lone ranger or, or a, a Texas ranger? Like, that'd be a better ending. I just didn't like the ending is all. And you're like, and it's first off, it's something, uh, Greg, I think you can agree with me. It's something every writer knows is that whole like telling the punchline essentially and then having somebody go, and then what? And you're like, the and then what is not the story, okay? Um, <laughs> but it's also, people have argued that so often Stephen King has received criticism for unsatisfactory endings, which I actually think is kind of bunk, um, but he does get that criticism. And I, I liked that. I like thinking that that's a nod to his like, uh -huh, this is what it's like, guys. Um, he's know. definitely, he's written enough stuff that he can probably get uh, criticism yeah, on yeah, almost anything pretty, at this point. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's a pretty mixed bag. There's somewhere... 
I would agree. It can be disappointing, and then other ones, it's like, no, that was that was the right way to do it. And some of his books are too long, and some mm -hmm. of them are really too long. Really too long. <laughs> I'm gonna defend it to the end of the earth. However, um, uh, there are some that are very short. Carrie is very short, um, mm -hmm. and actually, uh, Teddy Duchamp is mentioned in Carrie. Uh, uh, he's actually like a way removed side character, um, but that brings it to me. Um, I recommend this movie to anyone, especially film buffs. It's an American classic. Um, the cast is so stellar. Uh, it really is one of those like dream casts where it wasn't put together to be a super group of established actors. It just happened to be a super group of established actors that became more and more established as they aged uh, in, until their death in some cases. Um, and I will also say, if you liked it, uh, and you want something in the horror vein, watch the 1990 It. It's a two, uh, depending on the edits you're looking at, it's a two-part or a four-part miniseries. Uh, and it is, in my opinion, uh, much superior uh, to the new ones. And I mean, you're talking an incredible cast. I mean, you have Tim Curry as Pennywise. Uh, you have uh, uh, Brandon Crane, John Ritter, Tim Reed, Harry Anderson. You have... Um, I mean, there's so Terrence Kelly, you just, you can't, you absolutely can't go wrong with it. Um, the ending, you could argue that maybe it's a little anticlimactic because the ending in the book is sort of the David Cronenberg moment, the unfilmable uh, moment. Um, but again, great stuff. So yeah, watch this movie. Uh, and now we're going to talk about the weirdsies in part two, which you can catch next Tuesday. And that is it for part one of the Coming of Age episode of Colton Classic Podcast. Listen next week for part two, where we talk about Chris Seaver's Weird Z's and playing us out as the Chud. And I want to tell you guys, leave a review on Apple Podcasts slash iTunes. Send us your screen name and your address to coltonclassicpodcast.gmail.com or at coltonclassicpodcast Instagram. And we will send you cool stuff like stickers, pins, zines, neat stuff, I promise. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Cult and Classic Podcast. This podcast is important to me, but what's more important are the rights, privileges, and freedom from violence of everyone in this country and in this world. And that means supporting Black Lives Matter. If you'd like to make a donation, please go ahead and visit coltonclassicpodcast.com where we have a list of places you can donate and help out. And please stay safe.